Welcome, everybody. I'm Patricia Duff, and I'm so happy to welcome all of our call-in audience members and our two terrific guest speakers to The Common Good. We have a lot to cover, so we're going to get right to the conversation today. First, our brief notes. Uh, please keep your mic muted until the Q&A portion, um, but do please start to digitally raise your hand or indicate on the chat wall that you want to ask a question. We have a lot of really interesting people in the audience. Um, Bernard Schwartz, uh, journalists like Judy Miller, um, ex-IM president Fred Hochberg, Tonio Burgos, Bernard Schwartz, Eva Stell, Sybil Shanewald, Sally Menard, Betsy Cohn, I urge you, Morley, please, um, you know, get in the conversation if you, if you can, if you want to. Uh, we will try to get to all your questions, um, but bear with us. It's a little bit like being an air traffic controller, so um, <laughs> I'll do my best. Our two experts in, uh, in political strategy and, I guess, crisis control. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today. Susan Del Percio is a Republican strategist and communications consultant who's worked with both Republicans and Democrats, notably Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Rudy Giuliani, and many other candidates and issues campaigns. Thank you so much for coming today, Susan. And Joel Benenson was Barack Obama's pollster who helped lead him to the White House and beyond. And he's worked for many campaigns and corporations advising on strategy and communications. We are thrilled to welcome you both back to The Common Good. You've been with us before. So let's get at it. Everything about this moment in our nation feels unprecedented. Um, we've got a pandemic that has shuttered most of our public life and slammed our economy. And now we are a nation um, with newfound energy and pain, uh, demanding reform against racism, um, stunned by the shocking killing captured on the video of George Floyd um, and the grief and anger and protests that continue. And of course, all of this is taking place against the background of an important election year like no other. So there's a lot more that will happen before election day. Your analysis and predictions may be especially difficult to get right. I mean, just in the last 24 hours, we have polls showing Trump's numbers sagging badly. 44 million workers over the past 12 weeks have been furloughed or laid off. General Milley apologized for participating in the photo op with President Trump walking across Lafayette Square after peaceful protesters were roughed up. 1,200 former DOJ officials signed a letter calling for a review of Barr's part in clearing protesters to set up the photo op. And some reformers have possibly given Trump an election gift by calling for defunding of police departments. Um, but the unrest has created a sense as though we may have hit a new inflection point. What do you think? Will this election be a re referendum on Trump or are we talking about a whole new change? Um, Susan, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I think it will be a referendum on Trump when it comes down to it, because on top of everything that you just mentioned, the economy, we've seen a big drop today in the stock market, not that that's the same thing as the economy, but I think that is the way Trump won in 2016, and that's how he was hoping to win again, and he doesn't have a strategy other than that. And at this time, he's so void of any kind of compassion, he can't even relate to people on that human level. So he's got nothing left. And let's not forget, he spent the last three and a half years using chaos as a tool to divide our country. 
And the more he sought to do that, the less options that gave him come this November to seek any coalition of support. Yep, and Joel? Yeah, I also think that, you know, Trump, uh, if you go back and look at uh, 2016 and in the United States and even in Western Europe, um, we were in much more of an anti-establishment moment at that time than people realized. And the two candidates who overperformed in the 2016 presidential race were Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and all the establishment players underperformed. Um, you look at what happened in France where Macron and Le Pen, two people who had never uh, really been in elective office in a meaningful way, Macron had been in administration, were in the final round. So I think now the problem is Trump owns the establishment. He is the establishment, whether he likes it or not. And the techniques that enabled him to toss bombs into the arena, I don't mean that literally, obviously, but figuratively in 2016 and say he was going to blow up the place, he now owns the place. And what we've seen in the last few weeks is his inability um, to actually bring the country together uh, to deal with a significant crisis in a way that uh, helps Americans see a path out of it. Um, so I think all of his weaknesses have been on display. And, you know, I tweeted something this morning, you know, he always touts his favorite pollster, the Rasmussen reports. He's net minus 13 right now on his job approval rating. He is, has not been over 50% or at 50% in a poll in well over a month. Um, and he has no reparative skills. And I think Susan could talk about this also uh, as, as an expert, but when you're the president, the chief executive, you know, we're just talking about another chief executive in a state, when you screw up, you have to figure out how to fix that. But Trump refuses to ever admit he screws up. So he just doubles down and he's making things worse for himself now. I think he's created uh, a huge mountain uh, uh, for him to climb to get reelected right now. And I just to follow up on Joel's point, I think the other thing that we've learned in this last three and a half years is that knowing how to govern matters, understanding the function of our government and what it's there to do and how it's supposed to be there for us in a crisis, not just in an overseas war, but at a pandemic at home, how it's supposed to function, that lack of ability to get the job done. And just again, to follow up on what Joel was saying about being the chief executive and that you own it and he is the establishment He's showing that he has no idea what the job requires. And now, he, you know, we knew he didn't know what the job really required. Now we're showing he just doesn't have the ability to do the job. Uh, if yeah, I could well, toss out one other piece of polling data to build on what Susan said, because I think she hit the nail on the head by bringing in the pandemic. Um, you know, Donald Trump's ratings on handling of the coronavirus have been awful from the start. Uh, people think he acted too slowly. People think when he did act, he didn't do the right things. Um, and he compounded that with his briefings that turned into political diatribes instead of, as Susan pointed out rightly, uh, really figuring out what the right solutions were. And just, and the only thing worse, I think you'll see in his numbers, and Joel can confirm this, is that what's worse about his handling of the pandemic is the, what's the only thing that's worse is how he's handling the protesters right. in this moment in time. So he went from wanting to change the conversation from how poorly he handled the pandemic Talk about getting you know into the out of the frying pan into the fire. Well, it, to speak to that, I mean, President Trump has now chosen Tulsa, Oklahoma, as the venue for his first rally in months. Uh, the site, Tulsa, of course, is the site of a horrific massacre of African Americans, 
And uh, Trump set the date for June 19th, which is Juneteenth, the celebration of the end of slavery. So it goes right to your point, Susan. Yeah, it's, it's just difficult to see how all of this, how he digs his way out of it. But as we know, and Joel has a better handle on this than I do on the state by state and where the polling numbers are, um, I think we can see it's, well, you know, he's definitely losing the national polls. There are, it's not a done deal. This is not necessarily just because he's tanking nationally does not mean we're seeing a landslide. And while I think it will be difficult to get him to cobble together a winning strategy, I don't think it's going to be the landslide that some people think it may be. Do you think the campaign has already started or does it really start with the conventions? I think it's already started. Um, I think um, the the challenge for Biden is he doesn't have the bully pulpit of the presidency. So all the normal things you'd be able to do as the challenger now are limited. Um, he's got to figure out how to execute a campaign that is going to be virtual and digital uh, and, and a convention, Democratic convention goes first. Uh, so they've got some logistical uh, challenges. I think they're focusing on them. Um, but I think he did very well with his op-ed in the uh, uh, USA Today yesterday, uh, speaking to the issues of the day. Um, I think they have to be selective. I think now is not a time to do what you might do in other times, which is be out there campaigning every day. I think you have to really figure out how to strategically pick your spots where you can maximize the coverage you're going to get uh, through the digital means and then distribute that effectively. And I think also, just to follow up on that, it's how the Democrats certainly have a bigger challenge in that they will have to a lot, they want to cover a lot more with a lot more people. Whereas I think the Republicans will have a Trump centric convention. It looks like they may do some things in North Carolina and then gear up in Jacksonville for, in Florida for a big kind of rally Donald Trump moment. But I think the messaging and the surrogates, which will be critical for the Democrats getting out there, really will be launched in the convention. And it'll be very interesting to see what the Democrats do to harness that energy and start putting it out there because we are, they are so limited. Whereas Donald Trump, frankly, has been campaigning and started his, his campaign the day after he was inaugurated. So he's been throwing out whatever he's got. And that's just him, frankly, at this point. So. The only big question I have come convention time is, will Nikki Haley be one of the speakers or not? Good question. I, I think I guess one, go, go ahead, ahead Joe. Well, no, one, ahead. one thing to think about that Trump doesn't have this time that he had last time, um, and again, this isn't dispositive necessarily, but throughout 2016, I thought we were, um, you know, in a historic moment where we had two nominees of each party with unfavorable ratings over 50%. That was unprecedented in modern times. Um, I don't think that'll be the case in this one. Um, I think Trump will have an unfavorable rating over 50%. Um, I think they're gonna have a hard time in this environment um, getting Biden's unfavorables up uh, without reinforcing Trump's. Yeah, but I think, yeah, I just, I, I think that it is possible. I think Trump's could go back to where they were on election day, which I think was 50, 61% unfavorable. So in 2016, but I think he will do everything possible to put Joe Biden, who's already at 46%, which we would all normally say is a little high. I think he can push him over 50. 
it's just a matter of what else does he have? Whereas, because in 2016, trustworthiness was a big issue that they both, both candidates failed. Whereas I think Biden will be able to use that to help balance off some of his unfavorable numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think that um, Biden is gonna get hit hard by the Trump campaign? On everything, he'll wake up in the morning and that will be a negative ad. That's what the Trump people will do. They will just throw everything they have at him. They'll make it up. They'll just go with any rumors. They don't care. And that's why when you we talk about the idea of defund, defunding the police, um, it's not, we know what the message really is about. It's about reforming. It's a nuanced message, but I think Donald Trump will try and use that as much as he can right now against Biden, even though he's, Biden's come out adamantly against it. He's said it in no uncertain uh, certain words. But I, I also think that defund the police is gonna be potentially helpful on the Senate level. I think that, and, and maybe damn ballot. I think though, I, I'll push back a little, Susan. You know, you know the Republicans better than I do. But when you have Mitch McConnell putting Senator Tim Scott uh, charged with developing legislation on police reform and talking about the fact that no white person in America can fully appreciate the continued racial discrimination that's taken place at the hands of police from Mitch McConnell, who remember his parents were anti-segregationists. Um, I think that Trump is going to have issues with the Republicans who are going to take seriously what's going on in this country, because I think savvy politicians like Mitch McConnell understand this could be as much of a vulnerability in some of their uh, swing Senate seats, and they've got to speak out on this. And that's going to make it very difficult for Trump to try to turn this into something when both Democrats and Republicans are going to be talking about necessary reforms and law enforcement. And I suspect Democrats will get to a better frame, such as demilitarize the police, uh, reform police, as opposed to uh, what some folks have talked about. It's yeah, already but Donald Trump doesn't care about Mitch McConnell or anybody else. So he'll, he'll, you know, burn down the place to get reelected. He doesn't care. He just cares about himself. So I, I think he's willing to sacrifice it. I do think in certain areas, though, that message is something it's, it's the only thing, frankly, uh, some Republicans will be able to, to use right now. And I say this from the Republican perspective, not as someone who agrees with what they're doing. But I heard that and I said, oh, there are the ads, just let it go. And it will be something that we will see, I think, in, in congressional Senate races. And I think the president will just go doing what he's doing. He makes up stuff, Joel, you know that. So, so let me ask you a question, Susan. What do you think the Trump base is? He got 46% of the national vote in 2016, lost the popular vote by about two points. So let me affirm for everybody who's watching, by the way, that all the polls that people said were wrong in 16 were not. Exactly. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yes. The national polls actually had Hillary winning by 2.3% on election day. That's what she won the popular vote by. So, you know, some of the, you know, other factors uh, contributed like probability forecasters saying she had an 80% probability of winning. But what do you think the actual basis for Trump right now, Susan? And what do you think his ceiling is? I think there's a little bit of nuance in that in that number when people talk about what the Trump base is. It's not that I would say the the people who die for him is probably you know in the 30s mid to, mid 30s, but it, the people who will constantly say I'll vote for him that's probably at 40. 
potentially. And that more has to do with that they're voting Republican and they don't like being told that they are bad people and that they'll stick with him because they just don't like Democrats. So there is that part. And that's not the swing voter. I'm not talking about the swing voter or the nose holder voter, as I call them, the one who dislikes both of them. But these are Republicans who are just saying, I don't like him. I don't support him. I wish I could vote for somebody else, but I'll be damned if I'm voting for a Democrat. So I don't consider that part, that, that group part of Trump's real base. What do you, each of you think are Biden's election weaknesses and, and how can he overcome them? Some people think he seems weak or uh, obviously he does have some issues um, in terms of his um, messaging. What, what do you, what do you, each of you think? Well, I'll go first. I mean, I think that, um, you know, as I said, they've, they've won, they've got logistical challenges. I do think that they have yet to go out with a full-throated launch of a campaign where you define what you think this campaign is all about. Um, and I think they've got to get that right. Um, and I think they have to get it right on multiple fronts. I don't think uh, you can just make it a referendum on Donald Trump, although I think that's going to be a pretty powerful uh, force in the election uh, from a physics perspective. But I do think he has to offer an optimistic vision uh, that touches on people's economic lives. Trump is going to talk about the stock market. You know, I can tell you that when Barack Obama ran for re-election in 2011 and 12 and the stock market was coming back and doing pretty well, we never talked about the stock market because average people didn't believe the stock market was a measure of their economic lives or their economic well-being. So I think the Biden camp has to get to an economic message that speaks more on a, a macro level about people's lives and where they are uh, and draw a contrast there with Trump, which will have to be around wages, health care, uh, issues that Trump um, is going to be weak on. I, I would just like to follow up on what Joel said about the economy. I think that that's key. And, and I agree that the, the, the uh, stock market's not the, an indicator for how average Americans are feeling about their economy, but it is part of the narrative. Um, the unemployment factor is going to be part of the narrative. And I think what Joe Biden's weakness is there is that he needs to really go out there and show he is fully equipped to take on the economy. People know he's fully equipped to bring our country together, that he's fully equipped to bring decency back to the White House but they don't feel that he is perfectly well equipped to bring the economy back. That's when, when you look a little deeper in the polling, people are willing to even still look at Donald Trump because they believe he will be better off for the economy. I also think the other problem that Joe Biden has is with all of the difficulties he's now facing in this environment, which I think would still be without uh, the pandemic, is his ability to really uplift people and inspire them to go out and get to the polls. Now, because we're in this environment, it won't matter as much, but I, I know a lot of Republicans, let's put it this way, who were really excited about Joe Biden running. Uh, they wanted him to run, they were ready to support him. And then they saw him out there, and this is while he was running in the primaries, and they really were not too impressed with him. They'll vote for him because they won't vote for Trump. But it was really kind of, um, he was a letdown to a lot of, I think, moderates. And the potential he has, too, is going too far to the left. Um, again, I don't think that that will make people vote for Donald Trump who are just disgusted with him. 
and he may win by them staying home. So that could be the, be the potential benefit. But I think he has a hard time running against, and he doesn't know how to run against Donald Trump. No one does. And you don't know what to expect. And he's a decent man and doesn't know how to run against indecency. Patricia, can you hear me? I can, yes. Bernard wants to ask a question. He just sent me an email. Okay, Bernard, have at it. Might be muted. You're not muted now. We can hear you. Thank you. Okay, uh, Joel covered it a little bit. Um, um, it's not enough for the Democrats to say what they're against. Everybody knows who the evil person is in his play. It's Donald Trump. But I've been around for a very long time, and the one thing that I've been consistently wrong about is Donald Trump's victories. He's won every time when I expected him to lose, including 2016. I don't think 2020 is a foregone conclusion. So it's not enough for us to outline, as we have here this morning, or this afternoon, what um, is wrong with Donald Trump. It's important for the de Republicans, or the Democrats, to be able to define what it is we are for as well. And it's not enough to say that we have a candidate who has had a tough life, and therefore we have sympathy for him. We have to be able to show that the Democratic Party has positive answers to the endemic, positive answers to the economy, positive answers to the, what makes America great and run. Otherwise, we not only will lose, we deserve to lose. Well, I, I assume you want me to address that, Bernard. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't disagree with you. I think you, I, as I said, I think one of the things the campaign has to do in the near future is define what this campaign is all about. And by that, I didn't mean just make it all about Donald Trump. Um, and you're, you're also uh, implicitly making another point that incumbency always comes with some advantages for presidents. We don't have a long history of uh, one-term presidents um, and turning them out of office. People see it as a big job. Um, but I do think, uh, particularly if the pandemic, which none of us hope for, but if, as some people forecast and medical professionals forecast, if this comes back, um, you know, I think when we talk about healthcare in America, there's one party that has owned that issue now for uh, close to three decades, and that's been the Democratic Party. Uh, ironically, because Republicans once proposed national healthcare, Democrats now own that. Um, and I think that that will be an advantage versus Trump. Um, he's opposed every kind of health care bill. Uh, he tried to repeal Obamacare, uh, which people, Obamacare has a higher approval rating than it ever had during Barack Obama's um, uh, presidency. So I think on that and on economic equality, I mean, if we're going to have a situation here socially where we're going to have a real discussion about better wages, uh, economic programs for disadvantaged communities, someone like Mitch McConnell talking about structural racism, basically, that has held back African-Americans in America, um, I think the Democratic Party is going to be able to formulate a platform that will be very center-left, consistent with our values over the past several decades, uh, that will create a very favorable contrast against Donald Trump and the Republican Party where it stands right now, which, by the way, we haven't talked about 
um, there are enough Republicans here speaking out these days that I can't remember the last time uh, we saw probably 1968 as much disaffection uh, with an incumbent president uh, running for their second term, which would have been Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, and, and to follow up on that, I think that it is important that when Biden comes out of his basement, so, so to speak, he really just comes out all guns shooting blazing. Like he has to have a plan for everything and not an Elizabeth Warren style, but a real sense of this is the American recovery. I mean, Joel can speak to them what it, how important a message of hope is, but I think in Biden's case, it has to be not just hope for our society, but hope in our recovery. And this is how we're going to do it. He needs to show he is ready to go on day one and fully equipped to do the job of governance. And that will also stand in stark contrast to Donald Trump. And on top of it, Biden actually has a record that he could talk about in working with President Obama. So I think that's one of the things, even if no one reads it, one of those plans, he's just got to show that he is ready to tackle whatever is coming day one. Because I'm sorry to say this, he does seem a little slower in his step than he used to. So he's got to just say he's on top of this and I've got it. We have a question from Cheryl Douglas about, uh, they'd like you to speak about voter suppression. Uh, perhaps we could bring up what happened in Georgia, if that amounts to voter suppression, and certainly uh, what looks like voter suppression in other states. I mean, look, this, is, this has been um, an ongoing tactic, and it's been a strategy in several states uh, of, uh, of Republicans. They, uh, they talk about voter fraud. I've done polling where we ask people how significant a problem they think voter fraud is. Um, and they'll say you'll get very high numbers, uh, not very high numbers, but you'll get a sizable number of people um, saying that they say that voter fraud is a serious problem. And then if you ask them, have you heard about any voter fraud in your state or local elections, the percentage of people who say there's voter fraud, about 10% say they've seen it in their local elections. Um, look, there are uh, our, our system for, you know, we. Uh, pronounce ourselves the greatest democracy on earth. Our voting system is one of the worst. It's designed to discourage people and make it hard. Uh, this Democrats are going to have to be vigilant. There are secretaries of state who are dedicated to making it harder to vote. Um, you know, I think Democrats at some point are going to have to. Uh, this may be anathema to some people. I've I've got, I've got data on this. I think Democrats at some point are going to have to embrace photo ID, which, by the way is embraced disproportionately by African-Americans in polling I've done. And uh, I even presented this to a, a very prominent African-American group in New York City once, and they looked at me like I was crazy when I said it. And I asked them in the room, these were lawyers, bankers, about 80 African-American men. It's a group called the Boulay. I said, how many people here in this room have had to wait online more than two hours to vote? And about two thirds of their hands went up. And I said, I live in the same city you have. I've never had to wait more than two hours to vote. You know, and I think that um, we're gonna have to be vigilant as Democrats. We can't give up this fight. Um, but, you know, even what happened in Georgia the other day was calculated. Um, and it is, uh, it, it, it is gonna be a stain and a shame on our democracy if we keep letting these secretaries of state at the state level uh, do what they do to make it harder and more difficult to vote. And, you know, we, we, we can send, still send selective service cards to every male born in this country at age 18, which we actually do. 
Um, there's no reason why we can't sell, send a voter registration card to everybody at age 18 either. We should be embracing more people voting. I agree. As a Republican, this is one of the things that just kills me. Um, I think we should have, everyone should be encouraged to vote. We should, and if Republicans can't win because more people are voting, there's something wrong with us, not the voters. And that has always just broken my heart when I hear that. Um, I, I do believe that there are things now, I don't know if it's photo ID, but I do think that there are things that we could probably do um, when it comes to technology to make people feel like there's more of an even playing field and maybe dispel some of that idea that there's, there is voter fraud. I've worked in this business. I've worked in New York politics on top of it for 30 years. There's no voter fraud. Like there's, I mean, you used to find it here and there and it's like, it's a joke. It's not even real, you know, it's people kind of trying to get away with a vote here or there, but it's minimal. It's minuscule. I think I can name 10 times in 30 years. But I do think when it comes to technology, be, being able to move people off the voter rolls properly, because our, our, there, there is a problem there. You shouldn't have, I mean, that you can go to the voter rolls and it will say so-and-so deceased and they can still get an absentee ballot mailed to them, application mailed right. to them, even though they're named as deceased. Right. So we need to do more to instill the confidence as far as 2020 voter uh, suppression is there, I think the biggest threat to that is Donald Trump when he talks about our democracy, democracy being rigged. Um, he did it in 2016, I think he'll do it again. And I think that's one of the most dangerous things that will happen in this election cycle because he will, I could just imagine trying to get him out of that White House when he loses. Uh, I wanna throw it to Judith Miller, I was gonna, Oh, <laughs> sorry to catch you mid-gulp, but um, you have a question about VP <laughs> choices? Uh, oh, my question about, yes, yeah, since I, I sent about 20 questions. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask, um, you know, how in, is this the year when uh, the choice of the vice president really will matter? And does a... Uh, uh, Biden's commitment to, to choose a person of color and a woman, does that hurt or help him uh, with independent voters whose votes we des uh, are desperately needed if uh, Biden is to win? Is that uh, anyone in particular, Judith? <laughs> um, both of them. I, 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 go ahead, I, both I, of them. I have my opinions. I'll go after you. <laughs> um, Look, I, I think there are a couple of things about, I've been involved in VP selection in the last three um, uh, Democratic campaigns. Um, look, the first thing about it is you, you, nobody votes for president based on the vice president at the end of the day, right? Uh, the first rule is do no harm. Uh, they're ultimately voting for president and that's been true uh, throughout, I believe. Um, so doing no harm is one thing. I think typically people think, oh, can you pick a vice president who fills some void, uh, some gap you have? Um, the theory that I think has always worked best is actually trying to double down on what your strengths are as president, not try to fill some gap. Um, so for example, if one of Joe Biden's core equities going into this and at a moment of division and divisiveness is his decency, uh, find someone who reinforces that. Uh, find someone who has some governmental experience. I don't think, you know, historically, by the way, if you go back, we don't have a great record 
There isn't a history of electing people who have more of the traditional experience to be president. We tend to have elected people who have had less than uh, the traditional Washington experience. So I don't think it'll hurt. I think if the choice is a strong choice, who brings something additive to the ticket that reinforces the strengths that Biden tries to define this race on, um, that if it's an African-American uh, woman, fine. Uh, he made a claim, uh, you know, he said he was gonna pick a woman uh, and he's gotta live up to that now. And I think there are ample number of women in the Democratic party who could uh, fit the description of what I think uh, a strong choice would be in terms of reinforcing Biden's decency, trying to bring the country together, et cetera. Um, I, I agree with Joel, the first rule is do no harm. I'd say the second thing that the, the most important job the VP uh, choice will have to do is debate well. That's usually where it falls in the do not harm category. But in this particular case, since it's widely believed that Biden will be a one-term president, this will be the first time that looking at the VP choice, they will really potentially be looking at it through the lens of the next Democratic nominee, potentially the next president of the United States. So I do think it will matter a little bit more there. Um, as far as the, vice the former vice president saying he'll he wants to put a woman on the VP slot, that's fine. There's tons of great qualified women. I think he will lose no matter, in, with some circles, in every circle, if he picks someone of color versus someone not, someone moderate versus someone liberal, he'll get it on all sides. But um, I think with, with this person, particularly the vice president, I think it'll also have to be someone he feels comfortable with. I, don't, I think that will be very important when you're, when you're showing that ticket that relationship. He is someone who was in a relationship with his president and, and served as a partner. And I think he'll want to see that. So I think that will be something that will be very important because in many ways he knows that's part of his legacy as well. But that's more of a personal choice. I don't think it will be definitive as far as if he picks a woman of color, that'll ensure greater turnout in places, you know, in Wisconsin and in Michigan and other places that had such poor turnout. Um, in more urban areas, but um, I think he, based on what we hear, I think he'll pretty much be fine with whoever is in the in the mix right now. Leon Fock has a follow-up to that question. Leon? Right. Uh, thank you, Patricia. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Susan. Uh, last summer, Common Good put together quite a wonderful event with Ari Melbourne and Frank Lutz, who uh, Certainly the times were quite different then, much more perilous, I would say, and it looked more like Donald Trump uh, would more likely win than not, given the economy and everything. And uh, Frank had suggested, thinking out of the box, that the one person that he felt, according to his uh, uh, polling and research, who would win if she could be convinced to run against uh, Trump was Oprah Winfrey. Um, certainly times have changed, uh, uh, but thinking out of the box, seeing that Donald Trump, as everyone has noticed, is not a typical candidate and one can expect uh, a lot of unforeseen things that will look like photo ops, will look like children's playgrounds. I have a feeling by the time November comes around. What about the idea of thinking out of the box and uh, a Biden, Oprah Winfrey candidacy? Speaking of doubling down, Joel. I think this is, I'm just going to go with the, the one thing I said earlier about governance and knowing how to do it and having experience matters at a time like this. 
I think the last thing you want to do is put someone who is so out of the box, who doesn't have the experience in changing that that formula, it's also something Biden probably is a more of a traditionalist would not be as comfortable with. I agree with Susan there. I mean, you know, to my point about, um, you know, um, Trump winning, um, you know, Barack Obama was only the seventh president in history to get elected and reelected with more than 50% of the popular vote in both of his elections. Uh, people were in, uh, not out of the woods yet, but they felt very favorably towards the president. Uh, when Trump got elected, I think we're in a very different environment here. Um, uh, I, I don't think um, I don't think the VP choice is a place for Biden to take a risk. Um, Donald Trump was where people took a risk in 2016, and I'm sure there's enough buyer's remorse right now if we go by the poll numbers. Uh, that I don't think that would be the strategy I would advise Biden to do. It doesn't mean make a very safe choice. I think Susan's point about, you know, having someone who's additive to the ticket, bring some competence, um, even if it fills a gap on Biden's part. Um, if it's, you know, and I'm not saying it should be this person, but if it's Kamala Harris, who, you know, when, you know, got a little rough with Biden <laughs> at some point, she, at least she does bring some expertise in, uh, policing and criminal justice issues, and we may be dealing with those going forward. So you could construct the rationale around any number of women in the Democratic Party. Um, so uh, I, I think I would not go for some out-of-the-box. The risk of an out-of-the-box choice, by the way, looks like a Hail Mary pass. And when you do something like that, I know some Republicans may squawk at this, but Sarah Palin at the end of the day did not help John McCain. Right. Here was a guy who was running on country first. He was running on his record of service. He brought in a, you know, bomb thrower from the right wing of the party. He had been a centrist Republican. I, I don't think that's the kind of move Biden should be making now. I think he's got to reinforce his dignity, his decency. Uh, and Susan has said it enough times. I don't need to say it again. Uh, someone who also brings some competence. Janet Barak, you have a question? Yes, I do. Uh, oh God! Yes, I do. This is for Joel and Susan. I'd like to know what you think about uh, how much of a factor do you think Russian interference in the election would be, and what can you do about it, or what can we do about it? Well, uh, I'll go first. Um, you know, I, I think that this is, uh, I'm not an expert in national security and intelligence, but if those networks are not operationalizing irrespective of a president who will not care whether Russia interferes to his benefit or not, uh, then we're gonna be very vulnerable again. I don't think there's nothing on, a, on the surface that I've read or heard about in the last three years that tells me that the administration from the White House and executive perspective has done anything to stop it. Um, and I think there's evidence that it's still going on. Um, and um, so I think we're extremely vulnerable. Um, yeah. I think that there will be, they will try and interfere similar to the way they did in 2016. Um, it's harder in this environment because you, there's nothing, there's no playbook to follow. So I will say this, that they will have to kind of figure out how to 
to play this system because no one does right now. It really is a brand new world when it comes to elections. Um, from a security point of view, there was a lot being done by the Department of Homeland Security. Our, our, our machines are protected on a state-by-state -state level. And I would argue that potentially, now that we're gonna be just seeing so many mail-in uh, ballots, it may be even a little more secure that way as a result, um, just from the, the procedural end. Thank you. What do you think the chances are that we get mail-in voting in time? Well, it exists, I mean, it exists in a lot of states. It's how, how open will each state make their system? Um, my bigger concern is how the funding of the, the post office will go. They've already, they've been needing money um, for, for many years. Trump went to war on them over, over Amazon, over stupid stuff. I mean, that's what Trump does. But, and now he has a political crony in there who is probably just going to delay the process of what needs to get done and keeping, they should be upping the activity there. And that's what concerns me most about um, mail-in voting, because you look at Wisconsin, you look at Florida, I mean, there's a lot of state, Ohio, I mean, this happens a lot. I think the states can manage it. It will be painful. I think we are looking at not knowing who won the election on election night. Um, we may, may take a week, uh, but I, I would be more concerned about the funding of the post office than anything else. Do you think that's a real danger right now? The or are you going to defund the post office? Yeah, I mean, that was part of supposed to be part of the second round of funding. It was whatever they call the CARES 2, I don't know, 2.0, the second round of funding for the pandemic was part of that was to the post office. They wanted, they wanted money originally, they applied because they were having problems. Um, I think it's a significant problem that I know that the congressional Democrats are very aware of. I just don't know what they can do about it. It really will fall on the states and which states are going to put money behind their process, not just behind the, the, the wall of the post office, but in their internal operations of the Board of Elections. They don't have money. You know, states are, are hemorrhaging funds right now, and they need to bulk up on the Board of Elections, which is very intensive manual labor. <laughs> it really is. It's about you know, going through the paper. And that is very expensive, and it's time consuming, and it takes training. If you were going to uh, game the, or take a, a guess about how this election will end up as of today, where, where do you think we're going? Do you see a Trump, a narrow victory one way or the other? What do you, what do you see? Susan, do you want to start with that? I don't, I don't know if I see a complete landslide, but I see the potential for a strong Biden victory when you look at states like Florida, that was 1.2%. That was close, depending. This VP pick could potentially help there. Um, but you look at Arizona, where there could be a blowout in the Senate race. Arizona is where I'm looking to see the, probably the most potential for change. And then you throw in, let's say, Pennsylvania, which is Biden territory. I mean, it's not quite a landslide, but it's nowhere close. So I don't see a I don't see the path right now to Trump winning. I see a lot of different paths for Biden to win. Interesting, Joel. Yeah, I, Susan, I think was spot on there. Um, I do think that um, 
if you look at states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, um, without the benefit of a third party candidate and a highly unfavorable candidate, uh, which right, fairly or unfairly, Hillary was going into those states, you know, those three states, <clears throat> uh, Biden, uh, Hillary lost those to Trump in 2016 by a total of 77,000 votes and 660,000 people in those three states voted for the third party candidates, either Jill Stein or Gary Johnson. Um, so I'm kind of where Susan is here. I do think that um, there is um, definitely a path for Biden to get a majority of the electoral college. Um, you know, I don't think he'll hit Obama-like numbers, but you know, he, and, I, and I, I think Arizona, by the way, what Susan talked about, looking at Arizona, looking at North Carolina, a state which Barack Obama won once. Um, you know, if Trump doesn't do any reparative work here, which I don't think he will, uh, along with states like Florida, some of those states could be in play for Democrats. Biden had some pretty good fundraising this week. It'll depend on how much you're going to spread your money around. But I do see Biden, um, you know, getting in the 280s um, to 290 at this point, um, uh, whether you get to 300, which would be a big number. Uh, remains to be seen. Well, I, we just hit it right on time, guys. We're going to have to close with that. But I want to thank you both for um, for being with us today. You're always, I hope we can have you back. You're just spectacular. Um, so thank you so much. And I hope that these conversations help maintain our sense of community and our sense of purpose, our ability to stay informed and Hopefully it encourages all to uh, stay engaged in our democracy. We've got a terrific roster of guests coming up. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci uh, on June 17th, Doug Schoen and Rick Tyler uh, June 25th. Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland with Secretary Jay Johnson um, on July 2nd. Neil Katyal and Kay Koplovitz on July 8th. And um, Tom Rogers, um, I, we've got a date coming up with him as well. So thank you all. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Joel. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Have, thank see you. you all again.